Welcome to EduBlether. So this is our 21st episode, is that correct, Jude? 21st? That seems like a special anniversary a birthday. Big birthday. <laughs> um, and this uh, week, or today's episode, is on retrieval practice. Um, so we did say to you we were going to try and bring you more episodes during this lockdown period. Um, and great to get some feedback on the last one on leadership of change. Uh, really good to see the kind of feedback on Twitter um, and the high engagement as well. We're nearly at 10,000 listens. In fact, I think we're probably at 10,000 listens. Not for that episode, wow. I have to say. Do you have a spreadsheet for this, Jace? Uh, not a spreadsheet, just using the app. <laughs> just finding out how many listens. I, I do get very excited when you think about that There's there are people listening. I think when we first started this, it felt like we were just speaking out into the abyss. But actually, there are some people that like listening to the white noise that is me and you having a blather with one another. So I think if it's putting people to sleep, then we're doing our bit. <laughs> public service. <then. laughs> Have you had a, a good couple of weeks since we last chatted? Yeah, I have actually. It's uh, been good to be back at school, I think, after the Easter holidays. Just getting back into a routine, I think that's really helping. What about you? Yeah, yeah. Um, positive couple of weeks. Um, I think just having this time back to school in, in terms of thinking about next steps thinking about where we're moving but also a little bit different obviously not being in the school building actually giving me a lot more time to to read been doing a lot more reading a lot of kind of professional reading but also just reading loads of children children's novels young adult fiction as well it's really really exciting good yeah good stuff so this week uh, this episode, rather, this week, whenever it is, what what does time mean anymore, Jason? <laughs> we are going to be discussing, yeah, retrieval practice, I suppose, is a kind of loose loose term for that. Just uh, comes with a health warning that with that, we'll go into cognitive science oh, developments, take us into notions of creativity and knowledge and politics, dare I say, um, and just what is the purpose of education? There will be loads of things that we'll we'll have a good chat about. This is uh, this will be a tangential episode. There's going to be lots of things where I'll forget what I was saying and I'll come back to it. So I'm sorry. Right, but, but I'll make sure that we have some sort of structure. I think because we can't have too much rambling. You be Paxman and keep me on track. It'll be great. I'll do that. Right. So why is it called retrieval practice? Yeah, so I suppose just to kind of set the context of it or or how I got intrigued with it, I think one of the first books that I read about it um, was Daniel Williams' book, Why Don't Students Like School? Uh, and it was that my first sort of look into cognitive science and, and what that means and understanding how the brain works and what that means for learning um, and then it was a, just a kind of domino effect of books that I was reading sort of related to that and finding that that whole notion really interesting and understanding that we now understand more about the brain because we're able to kind of do like brain scans and the amount of research that's been done recently has opened up that 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 kind of phenomenon that is learning so that we can have a, a, an understanding into the mechanics of that much more than when kind of the the really sort of seminal theorists in education like 
Vygotsky and Brunner and everyone when they were working we didn't have that insight into how the brain worked so there's a whole raft of research being done at the moment and a lot of books being written about cognitive science and the impact on on education um, and then I read a wonderful book called Powerful Teaching by um, now I'm, I'm going to pronounce the names wrong here and I do apologize but it's Pooja Agarwal and Patrice Bain. Um, so Pooja Agarwal is a cognitive scientist. She studies the brain, um, and but she also teaches in, in university. So she's a sort of practicing teacher, got a, a, a learning hat on, but also she studies the brain. So a, a really kind of scientific approach to things. But she's also, Patrice Bain is a elementary teacher in America. So she teaches, she's right on the front line. And it's this sort of um, co-written book between the two of them and they go just through these strategies these sort of powerful strategies for um, enhancing learning and enhancing the learning process through the lens of cognitive science. And so is that really about understanding learning more so that we can as teachers then adapt to and maximise that potential is that essentially what it is? Exactly yeah, yeah. so it's understanding the architecture of the brain and and how how we form memories and and I think a lot of the sort of themes around cognitive science is actually a, a, a detailed discussion about what do we mean by learning mm-hmm. and that um that that committal to long-term memory that is something that can then stick with you and be transferred to other learning opportunities um and it's that so like a phrase like lifelong learning really you don't have to be engaged in any formal learning process for that to happen because just by what you're saying there anything we're doing on a daily basis you know we're learning all the time and we're committing things to long-term memory yeah oh see that's interesting you've already taken me on a tangent here. <laughs> uh, I read a I read a really interesting piece um uh, just the other day, um, Claire Seeley, it was that, that wrote this. It was she wrote it a while back. I think it was a summary of one of her chapters in the this research ed book where they came out looking at myths in in education. Mm-hmm. I think it was edited by uh, Craig Barton, the guy who does Mr. Barton's Maths podcast. But it's one of these kind of Tom Bennett series of things. But um, one of the myths that they were discussing there was exactly that sort of thing about we're learning all the time and that exposure to learning through experience is almost like a myth basically because it leads to the notion that and and this is me speaking there's a huge range of caveats around this and I'm coming at this with someone who's just reading around this it's something I'm interested in so I'm not by any means an expert in this if anyone is listening who is an expert please get in touch but my kind of rudimental rudimental understanding of it is is that she was discussing two types of of um memory so she was talking about episodic memory and semantic memory so by her it's that episodic memory is like things that you remember episodes in life like really important things that happen to you but they're kind of content contextually hinged so you'll remember like a really funny thing that happens when you were at primary school or you remember a time when your teacher maybe shouted at you and you just hated the injustice of it because you were not talking at the time and it was the way that you felt it was kind of a motive memory um but she was kind of saying that the, the important stuff the the stuff that actually we need for 
learning, for continuing thought, for for academic insight, for knowledge building, to be able to um, become an expert in in any kind of area is this semantic memory. And actually, that's much harder to to get into memory and into long term memory. So there is a bit of a a kind of conflict between what you were saying there in terms of just just learning through experience and learning all around us. Yes, we are, and we're constantly sort of developing that, and that is feeding into our memories. But actually, what we see is as that sort of learning in terms of school-based learning or semantic memory or long-term memory that we're saying here. There's a massive kind of growing body of research and growing body of people that believe that that the kind of direct instruction model is actually much more efficient there rather than just that kind of I'm open to all the experiences around me and let's see what sticks type model. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does actually. So in terms of what we can learn for education then, what are the key things that we can take forward? How can we help teachers to understand that better? So you've mentioned some reading there obviously yeah. that would be helpful if people are engaging with that just to dip their toe in the water but what are the kind of top tips around learning without so, too much into the kind of detail just the kind of overview what so, so the and it, why we called this retrieval practice I suppose is um because that's one of the the main things and it's a really sort of fashionable thing at the moment it's really in vogue at the moment uh, retrieval practice there's lots of books written about it um powerful teaching i mentioned there was another book that i read called make it stick by peter brown again a kind of what can we learn from cognitive science and take that into the classroom daniel willingham's book about why don't students like school there's a wonderful podcast actually called um the learning scientists and they just go through these principles to do with cognitive science and how they would be beneficial in the classroom for for class class teachers or for children who are focusing on studying for in, for instance so give me some examples of some strategies then so yeah so to get back to retrieval practice so retrieval practice um was all is also known or was previously known as the testing effect so it's basically the, the notion that just by making learners retrieve things from long-term memory so by having something that they've kind of loosely forgotten and having to dig back in their long-term memory to retrieve that to their working memory that that very act of retrieving something from your long-term memory is enough to boost performance in 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 a wide range of assessments and this is something that's been repeated time and time and time again and that's what things like doing a spelling test where you're covering up your answer and then having to try and remember how you do that by looking over that's actually really helpful well so there's there's a lot of kind of caveats and things that 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 it's not just doing a test and then hopefully you'll benefit from it so there's a very sort of certain amount of no no sorry I wasn't talking about a spelling test I was just talking about I don't know what you did when you were younger but in terms of learning to spell you're given yeah words to learn then you covered them up to try and remember again it wasn't a test it was just that's how you learn yeah so so that's 
again, yeah, there's, there's loads of interesting points with this. This is fascinating. This, just a warning now, this will be a five-hour long podcast. So no one. <laughs> with it. So uh, a couple of points to bring up on that. Firstly, uh, literacy and the cognitive science behind literacy is a kind of whole ballgame in and of itself in terms of a, a really kind of complex interchange between how your brain works and how the sort of written word works. Daniel Willingham has actually written a book about um, reading and the cognitive science behind reading, uh, which is a fascinating book as well. But the the notion there that you brought up about spelling test, and I think a lot of people listening might go, and maybe not primary teachers amongst us, because there's been a big change in the way that we do spelling um, recently, but people that maybe haven't taught spelling or haven't gone through that process for a while, immediately I bet the first thought was, oh no, spelling test, like that horrible fear of getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the main things, one of the main sort of test conditions when you're using retrieval practice is that it has to be low stakes or no stakes testing. So yeah. it's purely a kind of metacognitive. Um, but would we not always be looking for low stakes testing? I wouldn't say always. To be building, to learn from though. Yeah, and as a, as a kind of... Learning. Like, obviously different if you're looking for a measure of attainment. You know, obviously the SQ exams are an example of high stakes testing. Yeah, but yeah. when you're learning, you wouldn't want high stakes testing to learn from that. No, but I, and I suppose we say that from our quite privileged position within the Scottish education system who are kind of buying in wholeheartedly into formative assessment and the value that that has within education but not every education system around the world yeah yeah sure understanding I suppose but equally it's 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 enough for you as a teacher to think it's low stakes or no stakes but actually that whole thing has to be set up that it's a culture of yeah so the young person needs to feel that as well absolutely agree yeah so that that testing effect that comes from that and, and the amount of studies out there are so persuasive to be able to say like enough to get people from a C grade to an A grade just purely with the only change being testing at the start of every lesson a, a sort of retrieval practice where you look back to previously learned content and and test the children about it with a low stakes test at the start so of it. What you mean by that is really and probably testing isn't the right word to be using. I know it, a test is, do you remember something? I know that's a test. Yeah. But you could just be where you're doing a starter activity and the starter activity questions are based on the last lesson's period of learning. So you're actually getting young people to recall keywords or knowledge skills that have been developed in the last lesson. That's essentially going to have an impact. Yes. That's not a test. No. Because that's the wrong word. When people, when you say the word test, people automatically think high stakes. Yeah. Do you not think? But, and this, I suppose this is the danger or one of the pitfalls, I think, that we fall into as well with this, or, or certainly buying into this kind of approach to it, is that there's this notion that when, when you explain the findings from cognitive research, that people tend to think, well, we do that anyway. That's something that we do anyway. That's really nothing new. That's something that happens at the start of lessons. That's something that that we've been doing anyway. And it's almost like, well, 
well, we're just not going to interrogate or take that in the kind of all the things that we're finding out from that piece of research. So yes, it's in or so what you're doing just now, trying to find that similarity in terms of, yeah, well, we would maybe do that at the start of a lesson anyway. But I think one of the key things is that it needs to almost be in that sort of testing effect. So it's very much a, a child has to do it without that cozy feeling like ah well it's okay if I get it wrong because I can hide in the herd over here and not be found out it's actually there's an accountability that comes with it that you need to address head on I think to be able to say yes you're going to find out whether you've got this right or wrong and I might find out too because I can help you as a teacher but this there is a test element here because you're testing yourself you're you're testing your own memory to find the weak points to find out right how can I engage in metacognition here to be able to find out, right, well, it's that part that I don't know, therefore I need to do more. What's your scepticism? What are you, what are you? I just, I'm sceptical about the the use of the word testing. Because I think, you know, but but a star activity is low stakes. It's identifying its accountability if it's done properly teachers are are kind of getting feedback from young people about what the areas for development are and what's going really really well of course my worry is that by speaking about things like high stakes testing it can't be that it has to be low stakes obviously it's got to be about the culture of learning in your classroom being right isn't it so that yeah it is all about learning it's not about catching you out or or moving your sets because you you know all that kind of stuff comes into it so actually you're right it's a whole can of worms really have you read um tom sherrington's stuff about um rosenstein's principles in action have you have you read that have you, the so he tom sherrington wrote this book where he sort of discusses and re jigs a little bit of um, Barack Rosenstein's principles for instruction um, but it's this wonderful text where he just lays out very clearly these sort of principles for for instruction principles for for really quality teaching and learning it's mm-hmm. this excellent excellent piece um, it has its flaws which we might come on to towards the end of this discussion but there's or things that we might be kind of skeptical about but what, what Sherrington points out, what, what Rosenstein points out, is that thing about checking for understanding is something I think that we do, or, or, or certainly that they put forward, that it's something that we almost pay lip service to sometimes. Because you might do that thing, and I know that I've been guilty of it, and just anecdotally speaking to, to my colleagues about it as well, is that thing where if you're sort of in the middle of teaching something, and you'll say, right, okay, how do I check for understanding here? And you might check a few people through the class, mm-hmm. but actually really robust checking for understanding. So like like exhausting that, so you're getting a really good spread of understanding throughout the whole class is actually a really difficult thing to do. Now, there's a lot of um, really good tools, digital tools out there yeah. to be able to do it. But back to what we're saying there, if there was that culture of a test at the start of every lesson that wasn't just a kind of cozy touchy-feely starter at plenary activity that kind of touched in where as a teacher you might get a good understanding about how three or four children in the class are doing if there was this really rigorous robust um, culture sort of a, a habit that you'd set up as the class and certainly from the research that's what had the biggest impact was that that it was it was that testing effect that's the that is the kind of tricky bit now 
there's skepticism from me here as well because what none of this research does or certainly I'm trying to find out a bit more about it motivation and what that does for motivation and what that yeah. does that does that only lend itself well to certain curricular areas more than others for instance what does it do for the children who can't read in a test or test just they just have a an irrational fear, fear over so there are so many points and you're right to pick up I'm not trying to uh, shut you down on that but what I'm saying is the testing part of it is the right at the kind of heart of it I suppose and it does stand right in the way of a lot of sort of modern approaches towards education in terms of but also I think it's limited in in terms of it's more for the logical based subjects of the curriculum I mean how would that apply to a creative subject for example that yeah so you can't test someone's creativity well you can because we assess it don't we we assess people's creativity um, when they write us an essay but what I mean is you can't on a daily basis I don't think have an assessment for a creative writing piece so an art piece no. work and then go actually it's really interesting because it throws up a can of worms there because I think I can see it working much more for right you need to learn facts knowledge and then you can assess whether you have done that but I think for creativity you know like playing music art writing creatively that's trickier so yeah and it's it's really funny because this I've sort of been spending a bit of time with this subject for a while and reading quite a bit about it because I find it fascinating and I find it it's really interesting yeah really interesting to have an insight into how the brain works and then that then to throw up these debates that have been raging for for Mm -hmm decades about exactly what that you just spoke about there the sort of nature of knowledge creativity versus um more kind of academic subjects and, and didn't just say that well that's kind of what you were getting i was very <laughs> not to use that language um yeah i'm not ranting i'm i'm not <laughs> you are <laughs> what i found really interesting or certainly what the argument being put forward by the theorists that are in support of these claims is that any form of creativity requires a strong knowledge base to be able to be yeah and I get that that makes sense like of course like you've got to have knowledge before you can write an award-winning song so can i give you an example then one of the one of the um studies that they quote uh, about sort of retrieval practice and uh, how that works was that they allowed or kind of had students look at sort of several pieces of uh, artists work basically uh, and they would have like some children they were testing like they would just show them a piece an artist piece of work show them like the artist piece of work three different pieces in a row and then they would assess them as could they pick out that art another work by that artist Mm -hmm. just by looking at three in a row or what they were testing here was something I think they were testing space retrieval practice here or interleaving I think was one of the other subjects that they talk about which is when you're mixing concepts together so they tested another way a variation of the kind of cognitive science approach to things but they tested another way where they would just show 
lots of different pieces of art to children and they would highlight the one the particular elements of one and then they would go on to another and then they would come back to an artist and the, the children were much more um, fluent and able to discuss the artist's work had having gone through the approach that was in line with these cognitive scientific approaches that we're talking about here. So the argument there is that if they are able to have a working understanding of the artist, to be immersed in the work, then would that aid or lead to more creativity? Similarly, in writing, for instance, if they've got an understanding of the yeah. building blocks, they yeah, can... Yeah, well, that makes sense, I think, yeah. But it can't all be plain sailing. What are the pitfalls then? Because it can't all be, because why aren't we all doing it then? What? So why have we taken so long to catch on to this? And this really tricky thing, I think, is that it, it puts itself forward as if it is just the, the be all and end all. Now, I think part of the reason that we haven't sort of taken this on board is because of the, the kind of nature of the argument there around pedagogy and active learning, mm -hmm. uh, experiential learning, the sort of project-based learning that we're all very yeah, we're against that and actually that's the very thing we've been advocating for the last 10 years since Curriculum for Excellence. So are you suggesting we got that wrong? So I am not oh, suggesting anything. For the tape, no, no, <laughs> you no, just gasped I, in horror. <laughs> no. I find I find this fascinating, but I couldn't help but come up against these brick walls where I was just thinking, but what is exactly the question that you just asked there? So why aren't we not doing, doing it? Yeah. Why are we not doing this? Why have decades and decades of, of really intelligent, insightful theorists not been or disagreeing with this? Why have we gone so far down one route compared to another? And there is a Part of it is to do with that debate that's raging about direct instruction versus um, experiential discovery-based yeah. learning. Yeah. And I suppose this very much stands in the favour of direct instruction because the teacher is the, the kind of keeper of the knowledge, the one yeah. who has been able to guide and direct children through, whereas experiential learning would be, well, they'll find it out by themselves so much better. So you might describe it as quite old-fashioned then. Oh, Yeah. Definitely. And it's more so around, you know, and actually in professional discussions these days, things like rote learning, yeah. copying from the board, like all of that is poo-pooed quite quickly, isn't it? We don't, we don't like that anymore. It's not fashionable. It's not poo-pooed. I think it's taken us 21 episodes. <laughs> we've got to, we've got to poo-pooed there. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. And, and that is, and it's 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 these sort of truisms or things that we accept. And this is where I think maybe as a profession we're we're definitely getting better at this as being sort of critical, critically analysing things that we're reading, things that we're seeing, our own pedagogy within the class. But I think there's lots of things, lots of things, and even in national policy documents that we just accept as the status quo as, as i would agree our don't analyze i would think that we as despite it being in the gtcs standards i think as a profession i think we accept quite a lot particularly we're quite a centralized system you know in terms of policies that come out 
Yeah. From the Scottish Government, Education Scotland, local authorities, I think there's quite a lot that just happens and and we're quite compliant. Yeah. Um, and that's not a bad thing. There's benefits to that, but there's also huge drawbacks in terms of if we were truly questioning everything and if every single teacher had the same level of knowledge or an increasing level of knowledge around some of these topic areas, there could potentially be anarchy, though. People yeah. could be doing their own thing. Yeah, and I think that's it. And I think there's there's also the risk on the other side of this. Yeah. Because because it's quite um, divisive. So there's there's people that fall on one side and there's people that fall on the other. And I suppose it takes a, a kind of statewide system to be able to say, actually, this is what we want because this, um, we have valued this research. Yeah. This is our understanding of it. But what I suppose I want to get at is... Does everyone who has bought into Curriculum for Excellence, for instance, do they have the the working understanding to be able to be articulate enough with the other side of the debate to be able to say, I understand why we're on this side and not that side? I don't think everyone has bought into Curriculum for Excellence. I suppose not Curriculum for Excellence then. I think that's a good example, though, because, you know, we're now what? Actually, how long is it? Is it 10 years plus? I think it's even more than that, yeah. Must be more than that. Yeah. It just feels like it's always been there. Yeah. But with people who do not buy into its philosophy of education in Scottish education. Yeah. There'll be and people who thought it was a mistake. Yeah. Lindsay Patterson's one of them, a kind of outspoken uh, professor at the Edinburgh University, talks quite, quite eloquently about that. And it, it comes back full circle to that thing about it being a skills-based curriculum versus a knowledge-based curriculum and that's exactly what the the arguments that are surrounding this discussion around sort of retrieval practice that assumes that there's a body of knowledge that that should be passed from generation to generation to generation which is kind of in and I know there is a knowledge element to the curriculum for excellence and I'm not saying that in this debate is something that I am really ill-equipped to be able to talk about however it's interesting in this discussion or through It is. It is. No, I, I, I get that. Curriculum for excellence through that skills-based really lends itself to discovery project-based learning, that development of skills rather than focusing on a body of knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would, I think that's a fair generalisation. But, but, and 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 clearly, what we're saying here about cognitive science, or what a lot of the findings behind cognitive science tell us, is that actually there is that place. For knowledge and that knowledge is power and that, that that is what would lead to kind of greater developments in learning. However, the maybe, kind of people... and actually just sticking with curriculum for excellence for a while, maybe that's what we've got because we've got a balanced curriculum that's based on knowledge and on skills. Whereas probably before curriculum for excellence, it was more so on knowledge than it was on skills. Yeah. And then I sub- again, and I, I'm I'm just presenting things that I'm thinking rather I'm than you're asking too many questions. I disagree with too much you're saying. Leaving them to be my own, but that 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 argument. I, I, um, I was reading um, Daisy Christodoulou's book about uh, the seven myths of education, and and she basically is. A, a, a very very strong advocate for knowledge-based approaches towards teaching and learning and um, 
But that argument about, and this is this is where it comes, the big thing comes from if we decide that it is a sort of more a knowledge-based curriculum, or certainly if if the the developments in, in cognitive science and how the brain, the architecture of the brain, if that if that is telling us that actually direct instruction, knowledge-based curricula is the way forward, then the, the massive question that underpins that is whose knowledge who decides that knowledge where does that knowledge come from because what the argument is is that it is dead white men that the knowledge is passed through is knowledge of them rather than knowledge that will lead to critical active independent citizens of the world yeah i i don't disagree with you i think who who has decided what is in our curriculum at the moment yeah and some of it is political, you know, because presumably there's more of a Scottish slant and it's really important to know about our heritage and our upbringing and our history as a country. But yep. equally, is that becoming too political? And who makes that decision in terms of, you know, if you think about the whole independence movement in Scotland, is the curriculum becoming a political tool? Mm. It's really quite interesting, actually, when yeah. you would actually expect education to be about questioning these things um, and probing some of these key messages coming forward. But actually, when you look at the content of the curriculum, like there's a, a Scottish studies unit um, that that young people have to do. And, you, and that's really important. But you, when you start to question, well, why is that there? Because actually surely English um, studies is just as valuable. Yeah. Probably m much more vast in terms of... Yeah, actually, is the... I mean, how could you ever have a complete working understanding of Scottish history without putting a political slant on it, you know? Because you, you, what, what parts do you choose to focus on? Now, there the argument is that the autonomy that comes... For classroom teachers well then it, it's kind of left to them and their children and it's a lot it's very much a child-centered approach towards yeah the projects and, think, and the things that you'd focus on yeah i would agree but yeah when you start to think about whose priorities are we actually teaching it it's a really really good question that's probably the key question of this podcast i would say and that's, I mean, that's a notion that's not new in any shape. No, of course like not. Cognitive science is, but like back to like kind of key people in this debate in terms of Gramsci and Paolo Freire about like pedagogy of the oppressed and hegemony, hegemony, I can never pronounce that correct, but that notion that it's the ruling class that that are trying to control society through these kind of cultural levers that they have at their disposal, like education, that yeah. they are keeping so uh, forcing people to 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 kind of accept the status quo. So very kind of things that we accept as truisms in our curriculum, like maths is important, reading is important. Well, who says they're socially constructed? Yeah, do you know? So who says? Well, yes, they're important in a victorian view of the world but are they important or more important than like the argument put forward by like ken robinson or someone who's saying that creativity is more important yeah so if you take the example then jude of languages now i personally think that languages are really really valuable in the curriculum but if you look at the facts english is 
spoken around the world. So you could take a very ignorant view of saying, why are we learning a language? Yeah, and uh, exactly. These kind of... I know there are loads of benefits in terms of your Deliberately being tongue-in-cheek and and putting forward a kind of very simple argument in order for us to be able to talk around it. But it's true, and it's the same for for any kind of other curricular area, do you know? And then, then, then if you really start to unpick it and we think about things like creativity, well, in, in Higgius, that's that's in, inseparable from employability. So yeah. creativity is only important for getting a job. And I know you have very strong feelings on and when we get onto things like the purpose of education. So yeah. It's absolutely to churn out qualifications and get people into a positive destination, isn't it? The current system. <laughs> I was trying to provoke you. I know you were. I, I got that. But yeah, the current system is definitely set out as a product-driven. Now, it's not product-driven in terms of its curriculum approach, but it very much is a... There, there are winners and losers in this, this approach towards education. That to be fair, the aspiration is there for there not to be losers. Yeah, oh, that's true. And I don't think anyone... I don't think that we set out to disadvantage young people. Because when you talk about, like, Gramsci's notion there about hegemony or hegemony or however it's pronounced in that sort of ruling class. Yeah. Like, that, I always get this kind of notion that there's, like, this kind of group of people hidden in a secret sort of James Bond lair in a volcano just going, ha, 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 ha. It's not that. Like, these people have in their best interests the people that they're trying to serve and through their their world view they're doing the right thing so the the kind of architects of the curriculum for excellence did think that they are doing the right thing i just think that there's a whole part of that now though yeah and uh, exactly and that's why you're part of that ruling class don't kid yourself that you're you're not i'm not going to rise to this because true like you are a you're a senior leader in a school. You contribute to policy making, decision making that affects young people's lives. Of course, you're part of that. You and make that, decisions based on what you think is right. Yeah, and that's that's and away from that. That's that. This is excellent, and especially through this discussion, through the discussion about retrieval practice and what we mean here, exactly like we're saying, for us to be able, for me to be able to be taking this and reading this really persuasive research to be able to say right okay this is it this is going to work better I decree that in my school this is now going to happen moving forward could say that however and exactly the argument that we're making there it's all about your world view and how you take on that so what I'm doing here is unpicking that and thinking how does that look how does that fit how does that fit with everybody's world view in terms of what education should promote and I don't think I know that there we're talking about that's quite a political stance on things and actually I would far rather that my then education is political as we exactly. discussed we we have discussed this before and you can't remove your politics from it and that's why it's a, a kind of beautiful thing and that's why it's good that we are able to discuss this Absolutely. quite openly our views on on the curriculum and how we should move it forward because that's what is to ask the like, huge question what is the purpose of education then in your humble opinion um, sentence give me your elevator pitch the purpose of education is to allow people to reach flourishment and their full potential i don't know because that, <laughs> that, 
I think, yeah, it's sort of nestled within that. that. That's a, no, I would, I would agree with that too. Unlock potential, you might say. Yeah, but I can't help but feel that, that I don't know, there's so much semantics within this. Unlock potential feels passive. That's something that's been done to them as if they're... To empower them. Yeah, that kind of empowerment. Like their own way. I don't know. I'm guessing people have debated this throughout millennia. Yeah, what is, I know what, your opinion. What is the purpose of education? Yeah, for me, for me, it can't be a, a, a kind of ec- thing. economics thing. It can't be a. It but can't, you must. So I'm going to challenge you there on that. Sorry, I know I'm interrupting. I'm being very rude. Please do. Please. Uh, <laughs> if it's not, surely it has to be economic. Because Great. there is an impact. Great. And that's... No, but this is, this, is the, this is the bit that people... And I know that people... And it's not like I'm, I've am i kind of seen the Matrix and I'm therefore seeing something different from everybody else. That's not this at all. You're in your cave, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> there is like an element here, though, where that, that very notion that you've just put forward there is so accepted to be true that it's almost like you're daft to challenge it. Like and that is exactly what hegemony is. That's I, it. And I get that, and I think that's what you your key point throughout all of this is. People have just said that is what it is, and people aren't challenging it. And you can see that. You know, it's a huge political football. I mean, I was showing you positive destinations there. I was showing you we were talking about developing the young workforce. Like positive destinations is geared up to be an output-driven process because you're going into one of a number of different options at the end of your secondary school career. Um, And if you do not go into a positive destination, you're in a negative destination, but actually a negative destination could be you taking a gap year. Yeah. being a really valuable thing. Do you know, whereas actually in our product-based system, that is not valued because it's not seen as contributing yeah, that's because everything's set up for the economy, isn't it? Well, that's that's exactly it. However, that... I would sorry, I know I'm still no, um, I would argue though that if you didn't have a strong economy, then you won't build to invest in education. So you need people to contribute. Surely, if we ended up, if we just threw away, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but if we threw away our economic view on education in terms of producing people for the world or preparing, not producing, that's the wrong word. In the game, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Preparing people for the world of work. The factory like the that. people that will be the, the kind of people that run in the factories when we're older, yes. No, but, no, I'm being no. serious here. Listen carefully, please. <laughs> <laughs> Listen carefully. Yes, go for it. So if we abandoned that, approach of preparing young people for work okay yep. what you would end up or there's a risk you wouldn't necessarily end up with this there's a risk that you would end up with people who are not highly skilled for the jobs that you need so for example the tech world you clearly need skills or or an ability to look at things in a particular way that is trained over time and you need to have a knowledge and understanding yeah what I mean, I know you can learn on the job and so on, but and maybe that's the solution. 
Maybe it's you ask people in their secondary and primary school career, do whatever makes you happy. Don't worry about the world of work afterwards. Yeah. Come out and actually can get any job and they're trained. Maybe that's the solution. Yeah. So I suppose part part of that is a difficult one to discuss without becoming just overtly political, just the, the, like totally laying on the line political views of the world. I don't think you can discuss this. You can't just separate one part. And I'll make this point first, but then it also fits into exactly what we're talking about this evening about developments in cognitive science. Like you can't just remove or can even do a thought experiment like in terms of what would happen if we were just not to think about the economy because all of society at the moment is set up, not set up, or is runs through it's a capitalist society. It's a global economy that has everything, the whole notions around it, all the cogs are are working towards the capitalist machine. And, and we're seeing about, that tested at the moment, I would say. Say that again? I would see we're seeing that being tested. Tested, exactly. And what is the thing that has put that to the test? It's been a, a kind of national crisis where we've been able to say that actually the state can take control of very, very important things to be able to, to rescue socialism has been the thing that has come through here that has helped in that situation so in terms of our kind of socialist policies and the way that that we're thinking about yes we can fund important things to be able to talk now but can we though and i'm i don't want to digress into this because this we'll end up falling out <laughs> <laughs> we will and i i understand what I've said there in terms of taking taking it through the capitalist agenda is difficult to to not to 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 view because actually everything we view has to be viewed through the capitalist agenda yeah. because that's what we're we're working with just now. So what I'm saying there is that was almost like a reductionist argument, and I think the same thing applies to uh, this cognitive science stuff because what we're saying is in in a kind of in a lab we're seeing these results or yes in classrooms we're seeing some of these results but we're viewing one thing in isolation which is quite a reduced view of things and it's not taken into account inclusion it's not taken into account the welfare of children and what yeah, what yeah. learning looks like at home or motivation or engagement or knowledge and all these things that are so important that we've just discussed very kind of in a really messy way because we've discussed so many things there it's impossible to separate all these things do you know yeah. it, it leads into so many other things does that make sense it does it's a real i think you did not disappoint when at the beginning of this you said we were going to digress we were going to go down little rabbit holes um and talk about a whole manner of things and we certainly have done that tonight i would say we definitely have. Just just before I... Before What's I, your final thought? Go on. Not final thoughts about that, but just oh. only in that, I, I think what we got into quite um, heated political discussion there. And I think there was just a really interesting... We've, we've recommended the, the Better blog before the Better... British Educational Research Association. Yep, we have. Yeah, so just if anyone's interested in, in those kind of things that I was discussing there in terms of um, what we've learned from the kind of recent 
pandemic and, and what that's done for us and how it can prevent or, or present rather a, a sort of different view on education. There's a wonderful article on the blog at the moment, um, Five Education Myths That COVID-19 Shatters. It's it's a blog post and it goes into quite a lot about um, the sort of the, the political slant on it that we were talking about there. And, and I think it is definitely worth a read. I'll, I'll post a link post to it on the Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, on the Twitter, we will definitely, Twitter. We will definitely uh, do that. So if you want to check us out, you can go to at edubweather on Twitter um, to get that link and also listen to any of our other back catalogue of 20 episodes. Indeed. Well, thanks for that conversation tonight. I, I really enjoyed it. It helped me sort of frame... Got blood flowing there. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of things. I don't know if we delivered on discussing in-depth retrieval practice or cognitive science but we definitely we spoke about a, a wide range of issues there and I think maybe if anyone's interested in it it might kind of whet people's appetite to be able to go and look for for more things about cognitive and, science and I think we would to say we would be able to cover something in such a short space is probably giving us both credit to where it wouldn't be due <laughs> to be fair no. so I think yeah all we can probably do is just whet people's appetite at this stage and maybe we'll come back to that at another point indeed but um no thanks for that conversation Jason I really enjoyed that and um that yeah and we'll we'll see you all next time yep okay thanks for listening everyone and remember um please share this with as many people as you can and also if you have time and you're able to rate us on your chosen podcasting app it really helps us thanks for listening